This is episode 7 of Cinescope, and you're a wizard, Harry. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Melanie Sanchez to talk about one of our favorite films, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Melanie, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Chad. How are you? I'm doing really well. And this is a very special episode, everybody, because I'm sitting in the same room right now with Miss Melanie, and she is one of my very best friends. I am. And it's exciting to be able to sit in a room with somebody and podcast with them. I've never done that before. It's kind of strange. I didn't know until you actually told me that none of the people that you had done the podcast before previously that you weren't in the same room with them. Yeah, I think I've only actually met one of the people I've ever podcasted with in person. So, Which is also very strange to me. (laughs) Yeah, this is a cool experience. So Melanie, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, I'm 26 years old. I've lived in Dallas now for going on two years. I met Chad at Texas Tech University, where I also met his best friend, which is now the love of my life, where... We're going to be married here pretty soon, and so I get to keep Chad forever, I think. (laughs) Yeah, and her fiancé, Andrew, will actually probably be on the show eventually as well, so we all have that to look forward to also. Before we move on to our discussion, shout-outs to just a few new reviews that we've gotten on iTunes. There's one from Nick Romouse, one from Rio James, and then one from my good good friend Katie, who also went to Texas Tech. So thank you, all of you who have left reviews, including Melanie. That's always really helpful. So... I'm going to actually put an iTunes link in the show notes for this episode. And even if you don't leave a review, please take the time to at least go to iTunes, click the five star button. And if you feel generous, then definitely leave a review as well, because that will help us get to the TV film new and noteworthy on iTunes. And that would be great. So with that, are you ready, Melanie? I am so ready. Okay, let's do this. So we are talking about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone this week. It was released on the 16th of November, 2001. A little British callback with a date there. It was directed by Chris Columbus, who of course also directed Adventures in Babysitting, the first two Home Alone movies, Mrs. Doubtfire, the next Harry Potter movie, and Rent. The script was written by Steve Cloves, who wrote the screenplays for all the films in the series, minus Order of the Phoenix, and is also returning to assist J.K. Rowling with the screenplay for the upcoming Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them movie. The music is by one of our favorites, John Williams, who, we'll just go over them again, also composed the scores for Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the other indie films, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Schindler's List, Jurassic Park, Saving Private Ryan, the first three Harry Potter films, War Horse, and most recently, The BFG. This movie stars Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grant, Emma Watson, Richard Harris, Alan Rickman, Maggie Smith, Robbie Coltrane, Tom Felton, and frankly, just a whole lot of great British actors. So if you want to find the full list, the full cast list, there's also going to be a link to that in the show notes as well. So Melanie, what was your first experience with this movie? Okay, so... My very, very first experience with anything Harry Potter, truly, was on my sixth grade field trip to go watch this movie. It was kind of a big deal because magic and Christianity was kind of a really hot button topic for a lot of parents. So there was permission slips sent home to see if we can even go and see this movie. And I thought that was very strange. Mm -hmm. But I do remember going into this movie not really knowing anything about Harry Potter. Incidentally, I did own the first two books. I begged my parents to buy them for me and then never touched them again. (laughs) But um I remember going into the movie, like I said before, not really knowing anything about it, except that it was supposed to be the best thing ever. Kids were super excited about it. Half my class were apparently like huge Harry Potter fans, and I was not one of them. But then obviously coming out of the film, I was hooked. I was pretty much addicted, obviously. (laughs) So that that was my first experience with the film, and I remember... That was the first movie I remember sitting on the edge of my seat for the entire time from Mm. basically past the point of the 
Harry Potter title on the screen. The two of that moment where they are leaving on Hogwarts. The the Hogwarts Express. The Hogwarts Express, yeah. That okay. was like the first time. Well, for me, I had read the books just shy of two years previous to the movie. Mm-hmm. And I had been the only one in my family to read those at that time. I had gotten the first book for Christmas for my grandmother. And I ignored it for a little bit because there's this girl in my class who liked Harry Potter. And of course, as a second grader, I didn't want to like anything that this girl that I didn't like liked. So it took me a couple weeks, but I eventually picked it up and I finished reading it by the time my birthday rolled around, which was only two, three weeks after Christmas. So I picked it up and I loved it so much that my grandmother also bought me the second and third books, which were already out by that time. And I read through those just as quickly. And then, of course, the movie came around and I said, okay, Grana, you have to go to the movie with me. And so I forced my grandmother to <laughs> read the first book so that she would take me to the movie. And she was sort of dreading it. She didn't think she'd like it. But of course, she was hooked as well. Naturally. So the first time I saw this movie was with my grandmother. One of my best friends at the time might have actually been there as well. I don't remember for sure, but definitely my grandmother was. And it's just such a good movie. I loved it from the very beginning. It was just a great movie. And then watching it now, it's the first time I've watched it in a few years. And there's so much of this movie that's just sort of ingrained in my memory. I would drift away from the screen for just a second. And I'd find myself quoting the exact lines that are on the screen anyways. I didn't have to give it my full attention because so much of it was already sort of backlogged in my memory. Uh So there's that. There's the film aspect. And then, of course, I talked about in our preview episode that the soundtrack by John Williams for this movie is like incredibly important to me. It's my my very first film soundtrack ever and that is mine too i never use my my personal like i guess allowance money or whatever i had at the time to buy anything like that before that was the very first cd i actually bought on my own and used my own money for so yeah that it holds a really special place in my heart too yeah and i remember like car rides with my family where i had my sony discman (laughs) and like my harry potter cd and and i had used that to sort of help me calm down in the long car rides at late at night so mm-hmm. I can get some sleep and not to say it's a boring score but it's just it's got that peaceful quality it to does. it it's really calming like you said and mm-hmm. I think that is also one of the first times I listened all the way of a CD completely through where it didn't have any words yeah isn't that weird to think about it, it is <laughs> and I mean we'll talk more about the score specifically later but I will say now it's probably one of my all-time favorites if not my definite most favorite score mm-hmm. Going back to the film in general, I I would say that this is probably the most important film of my childhood. It's just I've made so many friendships over Harry Potter and kept friendships through Harry Potter over the years. And then, of course, our friendship is based largely in Harry Potter. And that was one of our early connecting points when we first met and first Uh started hanging around each other a little bit. Because like you said, Andrew and I were best friends and had been for a long time. And so you were a new person in my life. And Harry Potter was one of those things that sort of just we bonded over. So that's maybe not this movie specific, but Harry Potter in general was a big part of our friendship. Mm -hmm. I think I remember being more nervous to meet you than actually meeting his parents. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever told him or you that, but I just remember Drew telling me that Chad is very quiet. Chad doesn't like connect with people very quickly. So when he told me he's like you can't go wrong with like three basic topics, music, <laughs> movies, and especially Harry Potter. I was like, I got this. Let's do this. And so we sat at Chili's for I don't know what like <laughs> three and something hours. Too long. probably (laughs) talking about this one subject. And I think, yeah, that's where our friendship definitely blossomed the most. And obviously I passed the test and we're, (laughs) we're still best friends. And here we are recording a podcast over it. I know, how weird. Okay. Okay. So let's go ahead and dive into the story. So for me, the very first thing I want to point out with this movie is the wonderful world building and the sort of character building. The story here is pretty basic. It's like, classic hero's journey kind of stuff Mm -hmm. where the boy is separate and then he is thrust into this new world and he has a mentor and he makes friends and he's going on this journey to beat the bad guy. And that's, that's very much what the story is. It's nothing groundbreaking as far as the simple stuff goes, but all around that you have the wizarding world and you have the mechanics of it. You have what's a muggle you have, who's Voldemort, who's, he must not be named, who's, Mm -hmm. or is the leaky cauldron. I mean, it's, there's so much that we have to discover as we watch this movie. But what's so great about that is that Harry is discovering it at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's a sort of cheap walkthrough. It, we're discovering it with the main character. I think it's really random moment, but I actually read a quote that J.K. Rowling tweeted about 
and it was people who were complaining about not getting their Hogwarts letter. And I was definitely one of those people right, who, me too. who desperately wanted it and felt, <laughs> I don't know, left out. And she goes, you did get your Hogwarts letter. We all did it together. I was like, oh, <laughs> that, that's super true, though. Like, right. we definitely experienced, at least if I know for with me, with my age, I definitely grew up with Harry because when I first discovered it, he was 11 years old and I was 11 years old. So I grew up with it just kind of like how we did. Yeah, same here. I mean, I was probably a little bit younger than Harry when I first read the books, but by the time he finished, we were around the same age. And so growing up with him and discovering the world and learning and going through this journey with him all along was very much a part of my experience with Harry Potter as well. And so the story, the simple story, is really expertly twisted into the discovery of everything else. And around all of that, it's a great sort of growing up movie. We've got this character who hasn't had much of a childhood, and all of a sudden he's thrust into this new world where possibilities are endless, and he's making new friends and learning new things, and he's faced with this challenge that he has to overcome. And none of this he really had experience with before. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a great way for him to grow as a person as we go. So going on from there, it's a very well done book to film adaptation. I think if if you look at the whole eight movie franchise we have here, there are probably two that I would say are very, very close to the books. And those would be the very first two books um, and the very first two movies. Chris Columbus does a really good job of following the story. And I think what we're really sort of blessed with as Harry Potter fans is that the production team who went into this movie were fans of the books. David Heyman is the guy who originally discovered it. And he's, of course, the executive producer. And they cared. They, they cared about the books. They cared about J.K. Rowling's story and characters. And of course, they cared about us fans who also love the books. And so from the very outset, they were trying very hard to please us. And I think they did a really good job with this movie in particular. Right. I think that's one of the things I remember the most after watching all of the eight films and how closely from the book to the movie the first two movies were. I I was really bummed whenever they released the third movie and didn't have Chris Columbus mm-hmm. as the director of the film and didn't have Richard Harris as Dumbledore anymore. I All think right. that broke everybody's heart. But definitely the first one is one of the ones I really think about and truly remember it to be like the most real to the book. Mm-hmm. I think after the first two books, it almost was a disappointment when we it got was. to Prisoner of Azkaban. But I learned pretty early on that, you know, you sort of have to separate these things. And there's the book universe and there's a movie universe. And you really can't make a whole lot of comparisons between the two as much as possible. And so we really were spoiled. (laughs) It's almost not fair. If we truly had the book to movie adaptation, like we really want, it would take like 17 hours to do the whole thing, I think. So I was just thinking about what stood out to me. And what I enjoyed particularly about this movie, the first scene that I remember making it like a connection with Harry and thinking that it was completely real for him was him walking into Hogwarts for the first time into the Great Hall. Uh-huh. It was just like this awe moment, the music behind it, him looking about and thinking how like wondrous everything in was in there. And then the candles, the whole setting, the whole thing was just like, oh my gosh, she's actually there. Right. Well, leading up to that scene, you have the the, the boats. boats across the Great Lake right. leading up to Hogwarts, and you have that great reveal where the camera just sort of pans up from the boats and the lanterns up into the castle. And wow, the music swells there, and it's just really, really good. And all of a sudden, they're walking through the castle, and we're introduced to McGonagall again, who we haven't seen since the very beginning. And uh, it's just really well done. That's a great scene. It is a really good scene. I think if I had to choose from the entire movie what my favorite scene was, it, w- it would be that one, walking into the Great Hall. Uh, I, I wrote down a few favorite scenes. The very, very beginning, I think, is one of my favorites, just because it really sort of prefaces everything really, really well. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of dialogue spoken at the very, very start either. You have the the neighborhood on Privet Drive, and Dumbledore's walking along. And then he all of a sudden, he pulls out the put-outer, and we've got this music. It's a really mysterious setting. And he pulls the light from the lanterns, and he continues walking along. And, oh, there's this cat, and she turns into this woman. Right. And... and <laughs> From the very beginning, we're seeing these fantastic things, and it sets into motion Hagrid coming down, more music sort of bringing him down, and the introduction of baby Harry, mm-hmm. and the the way he introduces Harry Potter. And then all of a sudden, the theme comes out, and we've got the title cards at that time, too. And so that very beginning scene, I think, does a really good job of setting up the rest of the movie and sort right. of prefacing the universe. 
to know what we're about to get into, making you even more excited about what you're going to see, I think. Any other favorite scenes? You know what? The letter scene. The letters? The letter scene <laughs> where he is so excited to get his letter and no post on Sundays. Right. right? That he's super excited about that, the uncle. And then all of a sudden, like, just out of the chimney, out of the windows, out of anything, any crevice that they could possibly find, letters are just spewing out. I just thought that was really, really cool as a kid. Mm-hmm. I was like, how could he not grab one letter? How can he not get <laughs> just one to figure out what it is? And so I think that was really, really well done. Yeah, and it's a great lead up with Uncle Vernon's lines, uh, no post on Sundays. No post on and all Sundays. of a sudden, we hear this like great rumble from the fireplace. And all of a sudden, he gets slapped in the face as he's still going on about <laughs> how there's not gonna be any meal today. Right. So yeah, that's a, that's a great scene too. And it's sort of comedically led into really well. A couple more of my favorites. One that's a little, well, a, a lot less humorous is the mirror of Arishad scene. That's a good one. And I was watching that last night while I was watching through, and it's really depressing. It's the, the first, first time, time you really not only feel for Harry, but like feel what he's going through. Like, I don't know if this was for you, but I just thought of a moment if I didn't have my parents mm-hmm. at that age, at any age. We right. didn't have him, but at that age, that's that's really really tough mm-hmm. for a kid. And Harry grew up in the Dursley household, so this, I mean, I don't think it would be too far fetched to imagine that this was the first time he'd ever seen his parents outside it's of his infancy. True. So the way he approaches the mirror, and he instantly knows, "Mom, Dad," and then as I think it's his father maybe who puts his hand on his shoulder and he reaches over his shoulder to try and touch those fingers and they're not there and it's it's this really depressing moment where you're really feeling the heartache that he's going through and of course he continues to return to that that setting to try to connect with his parents more and what i think made it even more heartbreaking for me is that he's not going there to talk to them because he can't talk to them he's just he's there to look at his parents and that's that's the saddest thing I really connected with that moment in the movie. I, I, I think it's really well done. And Richard Harris sort of ends that, puts a cap on it by saying it does not do well to dream Harry and forget to live. And I, I think that's a great sort of lesson to walk away with. But at the same time, we get to feel for Harry and what he's going through at this point in his life. Right. Oh, when you brought that up, that just brought a whole mess of emotions <laughs> with it. I just, I did watch this movie just yesterday and it just, yeah, relifted again. <laughs> I have just a couple more favorite scenes that I, I'm not going to go through in great detail right now. There's the chess scene and leaning into the Voldemort reveal um, mm-hmm. and that little miniature speech that Hermione has to Harry. And uh, I, I, want, I have some stuff to say about that in a few minutes too. And then there's the final great hall scene where Dumbledore's dishing out the last minute rewards, mm-hmm. last minute house points, and there's all the celebration and everybody's, it's just feel good times. It is totally feel good times. Yeah. I like that one a lot. And then the last one that I wrote down that I'm going to have a lot more to say about in a few minutes is the Quidditch match. And so we will get to that. But for now, let's talk about specific characters. So what characters do you want to talk about first? How about Ronald? Okay. I love Ron. Ron, yeah. He is just like the, I don't know, the epitome of what every awkward kid at that age is. Mm -hmm. You feel for him as well. I guess there's there's a lot of feeling for Harry, but having read the books and no how it is to be the youngest in your family and how you're kind mm. of overshadowed by all your siblings. I feel bad for Ron, but I also think he's that comic relief that we need from all the depressing stuff that we are going through in this movie. Right. And I do think there are some points in the series where Ron's uh, comedic relief does get a little over the top, but I don't think it quite reaches that, at least in this movie. Uh, there are a couple moments where we really do get to sort of laugh at Ron's expense, but mm-hmm. I, I I think more importantly here, he really does, uh, he appears as the friend that Harry needs in the moment. So from the very moment he walks into the compartment on the Hogwarts Express at the beginning of the movie, and he asks about the scar, and then from there it's, who cares if this is Harry Potter? You're my friend. I'm connecting with you because you're you. And their friendship is really well done. I think the whole trio's friendship Mm -hmm. is really well done in this movie. But I don't know if that's a guy thing that... Girls, it's so much more complicated to become friends with. <laughs> with guys, you're like, huh, we're wearing the same shoes. That's cool. Let's be best friends for life. So like, I feel like that's exactly how Ron and Harry's relationship definitely just happened. It's just really simple. So they hit it off really well. And then Hermione, the way their friendship sort of kicks off, it, it doesn't it at doesn't. first. But I think this is almost ad-libbed a line from the book is there are only certain things that you can go through 
one of them being tackling a mountain troll without coming out on the other end mm-hmm. as best friends. Right. And so I think that while we feel for Hermione in the moment when Ron sort of picking fun at her and not being the best of friends at that moment in time, it leads up to something that really sort of cements their friendship. And from then on, there's no question. These three are inseparable. Mm-hmm. And it, I think the child actors here do a really good job of that and really selling they that do. friendship. Because I think, I think on set even, they were probably really good friends. I mean, they were on set together for 10 years plus. And it's hard so, to not become friends, I right. think. I, I think that's another testament to sort of Chris Columbus, because looking back at his filmography, he works really well with child actors and he writes for child actors really well. Of course, he didn't write the screenplay here, mm-hmm. but he did write the screenplay for like The Goonies, which is another movie focused around children, actors and their journey. And then, of course, he was the director for Home Alone 1 and 2 and then Mrs. Doubtfire, where he had a few children there to work with. Right. And so Chris Columbus has proved himself many times that he works really well with children. And I think it really shines through here because while the acting from Dan Rupert and Emma is not like top-notch, top-tier acting here at the beginning of the series, I think Chris Columbus really had a a sort of nose for finding kids who would one day be really, really good. And by the end of the series, there's some phenomenal acting going on from this this trio. So while they're, they're still kids here and they make kids errors and that's fine, they really grow into their roles. And so I think finding these three early on to be these iconic characters, he did a really good job. Everybody did a really good job of finding them and then putting them where they belonged. What other characters would you like to talk about? Let's talk about Dumbledore. Yes. That's one of the ones I had written down as well. Of course. We what had do you want to say to about, talk Dumbledore? about Dumbledore? Dumbledore is like the grandfather that everybody wants to have because, you know, he's just a little bit quirky enough mm-hmm. that it's okay. It's like it's acceptable. But then he gives the most amazing, simple advice. Like one, one of my favorites that you've already said whenever they're at the mirror and he just reminds Harry not to be so sad about what he doesn't have, but just to move forward in his life. And it's just some solid advice. And his character... I don't know. It's like, if you had to think about one, it's always Dumbledore that you kind of go back to, Mm -hmm. that you can depend on. You can depend on him. Yeah, I think, of course, the sad thing is Richard Harris didn't make it past Chamber of Secrets, but I don't have huge problems with Michael Gambon like a lot of people do. I think he was the, later in the series especially, he was the Dumbledore that we needed. But Richard Harris was the perfect Dumbledore from the outset. He really captures a sort of twinkle in his eye aspect of the character that's always described in the book. And the look is down pat. He's he's thin. He's got the long gray beard. He's got the half moon spectacles and the hat and everything. He, he really sort of nails down the character. And even though we only have him for a film or two, or two films, he really sort of plays up the character and we get really attached to him because of how well he fits the description from the books. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with that. He was just awesome. I love how Richard Harris actually agreed to do the role of Dumbledore. Yeah, if didn't, didn't he not that, want to do it or was not. concerned he about was, doing it, but his granddaughter, I think. He was very fervent about not doing it. I think she she threatened to never speak to him again if he didn't take up this role. And that I don't know. I just think that it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. And then it ended up being this super iconic role. And people who you say Dumbledore and people know who you're talking about. So Right. So let's talk about McGonagall just a little bit. I don't have a whole lot to say about McGonagall, but I think that Maggie Smith does a phenomenal job here. I think I should say, rewind just a little bit. Everybody cast in this movie and the rest of the series is like pitch perfect. I think the casting team and the directors, everybody did such a good job when it came to finding the right person for the right character. And everybody in this movie and the rest of the movies fits the character so well. And Mm -hmm. so... There's a lot that can be said about a lot of these actors and actresses about these characters, but the most important thing is that everybody is just so well cast. So going back to McGonagall, Maggie Smith really sort of nails down the stern aspects of the character. Right. That's probably the number one word that describes McGonagall in the whole book series is No stern. nonsense and right. stern, right. And so she's wonderfully stern, but at the same time, she's able to show the appropriate kindness and warmth when it's needed. Mm-hmm. So... I'm trying to think of this specific moment. Well, when she finds Harry to be the seeker on the Quidditch team. Right. The sort of joy she finds. Because, of course, she's the head of Gryffindor House. And maybe Gryffindor hasn't been doing all too well in the Quidditch tournaments lately. And so she's excited to have found somebody so young who can 
so young and so talented who can maybe stick around for a few years and really bring Gryffindor some much needed glory. And so there's that's one moment where we really get to see the, the the sort of joyous aspects of her character. And then later in the Quidditch match scene, we get to see her concern over some of the violence going on and over Harry getting knocked off his broom and stuff like that. Right. One of the main scenes I remember McGonagall in is when she shows altogether anger, distress, worry in the bathroom where Ron and Hermione and Harry are all in there trying to take out this troll. And I think that's like one of my favorite scenes with McGonagall. She she wants to be upset, but she's also scared. And then she's super sassy at the end of it too. Right. For sheer dumb luck. <laughs> <laughs> And she like she doesn't even want to take points away from her own house, but she has to because I mean she's a rules lady. That's like one of my favorite scenes with McGonagall. And as we progress through the series again, McGonagall itself as a character grows, and we get to see more of her, and she gets to play more of a part. And so it was a really another nail down from the casting team where they found somebody who was really going to grow into the character. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that, we have to talk about Professor Snape at least a little bit. Yes. So. He doesn't have his shining moment in this movie, but he does play a prominent role because, of course, we think he's the bad guy for the vast majority of it because the kids think he's the bad guy for the vast majority of it, all the way up until the final scene, really. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Alan Rickman knew from the beginning the outcome of Snape. That was something he sort of demanded from J.K. Rowling was, if I'm going to play this character, I have to sort of know where he's going. And so he was one of the earliest people to know about the whole Snape is a good guy kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think we see little hints of that throughout this. I would agree with that. I think the most obvious moment is at the Quidditch match when we see Snape chanting when we think because of what Hermione has said that he's trying to curse Harry off his broomstick. Mm -hmm. But what the filmmakers show very well is in the background, you can actually see Quirrell doing the same thing. Right. And so... If in retrospect, you can look back and you can say, okay, I see what was going on there. I see Quirrell being the one who's actually doing the thing. And then Snape, you can almost see the the sort of desperation in his eyes as he's trying to save Lily's child. Um, and that's one of his earliest tasks watching over Harry at the school is he's trying to save him from dying in this Quidditch match. Mm-hmm. And so we see little moments like that. And even the first time we see him in the Great Hall, when Harry looks at him and thinks that well, his scar burns, for one thing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, again, the filmmakers do a very good job of showing Quirrell right, right next, next to him. him. And the back of his head, where Voldemort is sitting, is pointed right at Harry. But in that moment, Snape almost looks like he's being more curious than stern or malicious, I think. And so I think Alan Rickman, the first time you watch some of those scenes, you can see the malicious side of things. But in retrospect, after we figure out the end game, then we can sort of see, you know, maybe that wasn't quite the way I interpreted it. And it really wasn't as malicious or evil in intent as I thought it was. Well, yeah, they totally set us up with thinking just by his demeanor, his appearance, he totally looks like the bad guy. How is a kid's mind not automatically supposed to go to that? But I also remember thinking like, this guy is always upset at Harry. Yeah. And for no good reason. So of course, J.K. Rowling definitely fed into that, mm-hmm. fed into the fact that we are we were not going to like Snape, no, by any means, no matter what he did. And well, uh, of course, up until the last movie, then we kind of just like fall in love with him. But yeah. up until that moment, I was pretty adamant that Snape was not a good guy. He yeah. was just he was out to get Harry, out to get Ron and Hermione as well, and he was totally this evil character who sided with the most evil man in the entire world. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, and let's be honest, he's still not really a great guy because oh, he does no bully means. children throughout the whole series. But at the same time, I think that Alan Rickman does show this sort of subtlety, even this early on. If you're looking for it, he shows that subtlety that says, you know, maybe this guy isn't as bad as we think it is. And we can only really recognize that in retrospect. And that's where multiple viewings of this movie and the rest of the series really come into play. Right. So any other characters you want to talk about? You want to talk about Hagrid? I think Hagrid. Yeah, let's talk about Hagrid. Hagrid is like the coolest character. Yeah, he was always one of my favorites in the book. Because he's like a gentle giant. That's exactly what he is. Because you see his size obviously is huge. He's this ginormous man. I think they said that he's supposed to be like seven and a half feet tall. Something like that. That's some insane height. Mm -hmm. But then you hear him talk and you see him interact with the kids and you, you see that he's way way sweeter than that he's just he was really really played well i think yeah definitely played to perfection by robbie coltrane right he i don't know he 
very much embodies the sort of warmth of Hagrid and that moment at the end of the film where they're at the Hogwarts Express and Harry goes up and he thought you'd leave without saying goodbye, did you? And <laughs> he gives him the, the photo the album photo where he gets album. to see his parents some more and all that good stuff. And we see Harry sort of wrap his arms around the big belly. And he, he really is this sort of, he's Harry's earliest example of a real father figure. And that warmth is played very well by Robbie Coltrane here, I think. So with that, let's go ahead and talk about the music a little bit. So once again, this score is hugely important to me. It taught me that instrumental music can really tell a story. And it largely fueled my desire to join band and to play the French horn. And of course, that's what I do now. I am, if I haven't made it clear on this podcast before, my major in college was music education and I play the French horn. So I don't think I've ever explicitly stated that. So now you know, (laughs) now you know. And so that's why I always try to focus on music a little bit every episode because that's, that's what I do. And so this score helped with both my love for movies and my love for John Williams. And that's continued ever since. I said I'd have a lot to say about this scene in particular. I want to talk about the Quidditch match. Naturally. Which I still remember is eight minutes and 28 seconds long on the soundtrack (laughs) because it was my most played track. I don't remember which track it was specifically, maybe like eight or nine on the soundtrack. I don't know. But I remember eight minutes, 28 seconds. And I think that track is one of my most favorite scored scenes in movie history ever. Wow. Because it tells a story. If you listen to the score by itself, you hear from the very beginning, you hear the sort of like percussive energy as they're preparing and they're in the tunnel and they're getting ready to enter the field. And then when they do enter the field, we have this outstanding brass fanfare that is announcing the team's entry to the field and everybody's cheering and everybody's ready for this to happen. And then all of a sudden it pulls back a little bit and it's tense and we know it's about to start. I want a nice clean game from all of you. <laughs> and then all of a sudden when the match does start, she throws a quaffle in the air and then we're, we're treated to this really sort of raucous I don't know how to describe it uh, aside from raucous melody that, mm-hmm. that accompanies us through the rest of the Quidditch match. And then throughout, we, we hear the moment when Harry starts to fall off his broom. We hear the moment where he jumps off his broom to catch and almost swallow the snitch. And then from there, we hear the moment, the exact moment when he pops it out of his mouth and it unfurls and Lee Jordan says, Harry Potter's caught the snitch. And then we hear the fanfare again that we heard at the beginning of celebration this time. And so just listening to that track, you can see every moment of that scene as you listen. And I think that's just fantastic score writing. We can totally tell you hate that scene. Oh, oh I definitely hate it. It's just <laughs> disgusting to you. No, I totally agree. One of the coolest things that I have been able to find that I was able to do with this soundtrack was play the movie in my head mm-hmm. as I was listening to the soundtrack. I had never been able to do that before, mainly because I said earlier, this was the very first album that I had owned that didn't have any words to it. Mm-hmm. So being, I thought that was this coolest thing that I was able to follow along with the music well enough to know what part of the movie they were in, go ahead and do all the lines in my head, because I'd seen it so many times, good gravy. I, I think I'd, at that point after owning it, had watched it at least a dozen times. Yeah. So one of, obviously like one of my most favorite songs on the whole soundtrack was Harry's Wondrous World. Every time you hear it, you can't help but get like a warm feeling in your heart. Like, I don't know, it's super corny to say it like that. But that's something that I always remember my childhood around was that sound. It's the most probably one of the most recognized theme songs, I think. Yeah, Harry's Wondrous World for sure. And I think we hear that over the end credits. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And then from there, we can definitely talk about Hedwig's theme, which is the Harry Potter theme. It's every bit as classic now, and I think I have to say this word at least once this episode, magical as it needed to be. It really sort of captures the mystery and the the wonder of the world from the very outset. I, I completely agree. Actually, I was also very shortly in my life a band mm-hmm. kid. I played the tenor <laughs> saxophone, and one of the more exciting things I remember about band in middle school, which was always a torturous time for anybody, I think, was playing Hedwig's theme at a at a band concert. My band instructor was super cool about wanting us to choose the music we wanted. Right. And I had said, well, why not we do this one? Very freshly having watched the movie again, because I think that was like literally a year later that it had come out. So we played it. And I, I will always remember playing that, that song on the saxophone. It was 
it's horrible. I'm sure now if I try it again, but yeah, I definitely remember that. Yeah. I think we might've played, well, we definitely played some Harry Potter music while I was in band in high school, but I don't remember which track specifically, but one more track that I, I have to mention is leaving Hogwarts, which is of course the track that plays over the final great hall scene. Mm-hmm. And as they're boarding the Hogwarts express and he says, I'm not going home, not really. And the, I think tugger. I think that is the single most emotional track in the entire pantheon of all of the movies. And of course, they bring it back at the end of Deathly Hallows Part 2. That's the track that plays when Harry is seeing his own kids off at the Hogwarts Express. And we see the trio and it's 19 years later and all was well. Leaving Hogwarts is just definitely one of the most emotive moments in the entire film series, I think. And pretty much makes me shed a tear, at least every time every I hear time. it. Every <laughs> time. I'm kind of tearing up thinking about it now. How lame is that? <laughs> oh, that yes, that was a good one to bring up. Any other specific tracks you want to mention? No, they were just the whole thing. I think we've already mentioned that at least a dozen times. But the whole soundtrack in itself is just really well done. You, We can obviously tell why John Williams was asked because... He's just a genius. Yeah. And a criticism I've heard that I don't really understand is that the score is sometimes overscored or almost like over the top. And I don't I don't hear that at all. I think that every setting is given a voice and a sound and a feel. And whether that sound is the sort of bounciness as they're walking down platform nine and three quarters or the the Diagon Alley music or any of that stuff, I think everything is really given its own moment in the score. And mm-hmm. it's one of those movies that uses leitmotifs really well, which is it gives the each character or each sort of setting its own theme. Mm-hmm. And then those themes are brought back as we're revisiting those characters or places. And it does that really, really well. And I think that this movie is far from overscored. I, I want more music. I don't think it ever takes away from what we're seeing on screen. I don't ever think it's too much. I think that everything is really well done. And I just don't get that criticism, and I I thought I had to at least mention it. At this point in my notes, I actually had to say I could talk about each track on this soundtrack at length, but I won't for now. Probably not. I think we would be totally entertained, but I don't know about (laughs) everybody else. I challenge every one of you listening, go find the Harry Potter soundtrack, Sorcerer's Stone soundtrack, and pull up the Quidditch match. Don't pull up something that's accompanying the movie. Make it just the music and see if you can picture the scene in your head. And if you can, that's why this soundtrack is so important to me, is because it shows that music without words can tell a story. So from there, let's go ahead and talk about the relevance of this movie. And that's sort of the themes or why it's just important to us which we've already talked about at length, <laughs> but we, we can, we could sort of we nail, can always nail down the specific reasons. Right. Here. I think um, one of the themes that I thought was pretty cool about this movie is how Harry, before knowing anything about him being magical, anything about his parents past or anything, he always thought he was not a significant person. Mm-hmm. He was always kind of second best, not kind of second best right. to his cousin and he was treated poorly and so he thought he was not an important person so what i thought was really really cool and and just kind of an ingenious thing that jk rowling did for us was show how even though a person can think that they are the most minimal they are in fact can be the most important person the entire community for that wizarding world knew about harry potter even though he didn't think he was important enough, he actually was like the most important person because he brought ho- hope to the wizarding community. Yeah, in, in a time where there wasn't any hope. There of, wasn't Voldemort anything. Voldemort was killing everybody. Right. People were losing family members, like obviously getting split apart, being tagged as a mudblood and it being a horrible thing mm-hmm. to not come from a magical background. I mean, he he was that, that beacon Yeah, I I definitely agree. And I think that Harry is also a really great example of sort of true friendship and bravery, Mm. which of course Hermione points out in that scene I mentioned earlier, right before the final confrontation with Voldemort. This is at the end of the chess match and Hermione says, you're a great wizard, Harry. I may be book smart, but you've got what really matters. You've got friendship, you've got bravery, you've got the dedication to others before yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I think that definitely persists throughout the entire series, but here we're sort of presented with it, with it for the first time. And even at this young age, I think that Dan Radcliffe and company are, they're able to show it really, really well that their friendship is real, that 
his bravery is real and not not something he's doing for the sake of glory, but for the sake of trying to help because mm-hmm. Dumbledore's not there and he knows who is behind this sort of acquisition of the Sorcerer's Stone. And so it's about putting yourself at risk to do the right thing. Right. And Harry does that really well here. He went totally and blindly. Like, mm-hmm. he and he doesn't no question idea. it. No, it's not just, even for a minute. They, they go to McGonagall first because, of course, that is the smart thing to do as 11-year-olds is to go to an adult. So they go to her and, well, Dumbledore's not here, kids. Sorry, but don't worry. It's going to be fine, I promise. Right. And they're like, well... Uh. Uh, I think we have to do something or Voldemort's going to come back. And that's why they're doing it. They're not doing it because they want to get bonus house points. They're they're doing it because they want to protect the wizarding world. And at that point, I think it really makes it known how trivial all of those things that they were concerned about. Like at first they thought losing house points was going to be the worst thing ever. And then you realize that people's lives are at stake. Like when Ron is hurt during that chess match, I think it really just sinks in for them on how more above it goes than just house points. I want to talk real briefly about each of the trio because they each have their moment. I already talked about Harry's sort of moment when he he shows true friendship and bravery, but Hermione and Ron are not shorthanded in those Mm -hmm. aspects either. So Hermione's is definitely Halloween night when the troll comes in and maybe she's not putting herself in danger in this moment, but after it's said and done, she throws herself in front of the bus and says, no, it was my fault. I thought I could take on the troll and Harry and Ron came and they saved me. And if they weren't here, then I would be dead. And that's so anti-Hermione. Right. You know that that totally just killed her to have to do. Yeah. But that's her showing true friendship because she knows the sacrifice that they made. They, even though they were the reason that she was off crying in the bathroom, they came because they knew that her life was in danger. And so they acted and then she acted accordingly and really showed I'm accepting of your friendship and this is the sacrifice I'm going to make for you guys. And I don't think it's any lesser just because it's after the danger has passed. Mm-hmm. And then Ron's is in that chess scene right. where he realizes I have to sacrifice myself in order for Harry to move on. And you're the one who has to go on Harry, not me, not Hermione, you. And <laughs> so Ron has his moment in the sun too. He, he bravely advances his chess piece and then is taken down by the other side mm-hmm. and he puts himself in real, like, true danger there, too. And again, that's not putting down Hermione's sacrifice. It's just showing the aspects of each of their character and what's important to them at that moment. And so all the characters here, all the kids, even though they're kids, they're capable of showing these real deep human emotions. I guess with Hermione, I think, like, pretty much like anybody else, really did not enjoy Hermione up until after that troll scene just because she was the know-it-all and she had to be right and didn't really show any connection with anybody. I also don't think I really liked her because I associate the most with Hermione (laughs) and it kills me a little bit to even say that aloud. But yeah, me and Hermione are like the same person, I want to say in a lot of aspects. But um, she comes into her own. She She really shows, I think of that troll scene, that she's more than just a minor character She's she is going to she just took her place. She took her place in the trio. That's where she her moment was to shine, I believe. Yeah. I mean, she could have told the truth more or less. She could have said these kids made me cry and then they came and they protect me. But by by taking the fall for them and really trying to to increase her role in the situation, then that sort of cemented their friendship. She, Mm -hmm. She could have taken it a different way and accomplish the same thing as far as getting herself out of trouble, but she didn't. And so that's a great moment for Hermione's character. And then one other theme that I did have written down is love, which is the overarching theme of all of Harry Potter, loving each other, loving, loving your friends, loving your family purely and not for selfish motivation. And that's what the Harry Potter series teaches everybody is that if we love each other, there's not much we can't beat. I think that's just a a great message, especially for these kids and for me as a kid and then moving on after that. For sure. Any other themes of relevance you want to talk about? No, I think we nailed them all. Any final thoughts? I think if you haven't watched this movie, I mean, if you've been living under a rock pretty much (laughs) since 2001, then watching this movie would be super beneficial for you. I'm more excited like to have kids and to be able to share this with mm-hmm. them because it's almost like I get to relive it again. You'll right. never have that first moment when you first discover Harry Potter again. Mm-hmm. 
And just to know that I can probably, I will most likely pass this down to my children. It's just a really cool thing to do. And it's something that I know I'll be able to connect with. Yeah. Using this movie as a jumping off point for the books too. I think that that's something you could do for yourself and for your family as well. Because as good as the movies do get, and as good as this movie is, the books are an entire thing altogether. It's its own entity. Right. I think using this to introduce yourself to the world and then sort of exploring and branching out from there is a great thing. As I said earlier, this is probably the most important movie of my childhood. It helped to make and keep some of my closest friends, both as a kid and now with Melanie and (laughs) others. And it's exactly what it needed to be. It's not perfect. It's Chris Columbus and company. So David Heyman, Stuart Craig, who was a set designer and stayed with the series throughout and is coming back for Fantastic Beasts as well. If they hadn't gotten it right here with this movie, then where would Harry Potter be today? We know so many different franchises that have suffered, unfortunately, from people who weren't committed, I guess, almost to that story. Like, I'm going to bring it up, Twilight. Those were horrible movies. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, they could have been a lot better probably with the right people. You know, another one that really made me sad was Percy Jackson was also directed by Chris Columbus. I felt like those books were so good. And I felt like those movies could have been really, really awesome and could have kind of taken flight like Harry Potter did. But unfortunately, not many people know about it. Yeah, it was so very important that they got everything right here Mm -hmm. with this movie. And I think they nailed it because it grew into like worldwide phenomenon more than it already was from the books Mm -hmm. because from the books we had another what four more years of harry potter thanks to the movies right and those movies had made countless amounts of money and now here we are in 2016 and we're about to get a spinoff film featuring maybe one or two of the same characters featuring the same production team david yates who directed five through eight in the series is coming back to direct fantastic beast and david Heyman is producing Stuart craig is coming back to do the set design and so much of this movie is familiar territory and we wouldn't be here if sorcerer stone hadn't been done right with chris columbus at the very beginning i can't even begin to express how excited i am that there's just going to be another harry potter adaptation me too written by jk rowling which is so hugely important right so cool right no i think i am so excited and i mean i'm pretty sure i donate a lot of my money to this harry potter franchise i don't remember a christmas not getting something harry potter yeah. Drove my parents insane. They're like, are you serious? We're doing this again? No, it will forever be part of my life, I think. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to say that this is the best movie no. or even the second best movie of the whole franchise, because it's probably not. But I think it's definitely the one that means the most to me. As far as what it meant to me at that point in my life when it was released, I wasn't even 10 years old. And this movie definitely just means the most to me as far as the Harry Potter series go. It's not the best. It's not the second best. It's just a great movie. It's very well done. And it's exactly what it needed to be at that moment in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree. Not to say that I didn't read before this, but watching this movie, I, like I said earlier, had given me the opportunity to explore the books more. Like how you said, it's its own complete world, those books between the movies and the books. And that's where I got my love for reading Mm -hmm. was through Harry Potter And it was from this film that I even discovered it. It was watching it in the movie theater. That was the first movie I actually went to by myself, like without my parents too. So it shaped a lot of my childhood. Yeah, well, like I said, I told my grandmother she had to read the book in Mm -hmm. order to go to the movie with me. She couldn't just see the movie. She had to read the book first and she loved it. And so from then on, she had bought me the first three books at that point already. And then for every single book release after that, she bought me every book. And as soon as I finished it, I tossed it to her for her to read because she wanted to read it too. And so that was a way for me to connect to my grandmother from an early age. And so there's just so many ways in which this movie and this franchise have been so incredibly important to me. And I'm forever thankful to Chris Columbus, David Heyman, and company for bringing the page to the screen. Sure. J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling, of course. She's amazing. I was like, you have to mention her. <laughs> <laughs> She's just, you know. Anything else about this movie? I think we talk about it anymore. We're just running around in circles. But, you know, I can talk about it forever. Before I do close off, I do want to give a shout out to Ian Crabb, who was, of course, on our Lincoln episode five. And first he wanted to say, it's not Sorcerer's Stone, it's Philosopher's Stone. <laughs> to which he replied to himself and said, second, I'm a pompous Brit, so pay me no heed. And uh, I did both. So there you go. You got your shout out, Ian. 
Thank you for correcting my thing that did not need to be corrected. (laughs) (laughs) He speaks so eloquently. I like it. Yeah. And thank you for shouting out. Remember, everybody, I I announced the film we're going to be talking about on Twitter the Sunday before we record. So if you want to have your thoughts included, like I just included Ian's, then you can tweet at me on Twitter at CinescopePod, and I will do my best to include your thoughts on the show. So with that... This is the end of the official seventh episode of Cinescope. Remember, you can contact us on facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Please go to iTunes and at least give a rating four or five stars is preferable. And if you have the time, if you feel generous, please leave a review as well. Like I said, Melanie has, and I'm forever thankful. That's awesome. And so just please take the time because that's going to help us continue to grow as a podcast. You can email feedback and ideas to the Cinescope podcast at gmail.com. And if you're interested in co-hosting like Ethan did last week, like Melanie did this week, please let me know. Tell me what movie you'd like to talk about. It doesn't have to be an hour long episode. It can be a 40 minute long episode. That's fine. I just want to talk about movies we love. And so if you're interested in doing that with me, just let me know. Melanie, do you have any places online you'd like people to find you? So if you would like to look at my Instagram or read my very few tweets, you can find me both at MelanieAmanda44 for both of them. Yes, and the best place for me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. <laughs> and on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And all those show notes, all that contact information can be found at com. And that is all for this week. Thank you, Melanie. It's been awesome recording this with you. For sure. I loved it, Chad. I was really nervous. I think I told you that like at least five or six times before we did it, but I had a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was a great time and a definite different experience for me being in the room with the person I'm podcasting with for the first time. I think this is the most eye contact you and I have made <laughs> ever. <laughs> Possibly. So thank you for being on the show. It's been awesome. We'll probably have you on again sometime, I'm oh, sure. Probably. Thank you, everyone else, for listening to Episode 7. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with Episode 8. Have fun and celebrate movies. Mm -hmm.